The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Uh, This morning, we're beginning a new sermon series we're calling Gospel Community, and for the next six weeks, we're going to consider together and look together at what does the Bible say about what it means to be a part of the the community of God. So I'm going to use several titles, and they all mean the same thing, church, church membership, gospel community, family of faith. These are all names for the people of God that emerge from Scripture. And we've chosen gospel community as our, kind of our tagline to, to enforce the idea, to highlight the idea that we are a gospel-centered community of people, that that is, our, that is our primary value, that is what we hold most dear as the people of God. So we're going to kick the series off in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and be flipping to Acts chapter 2. I want to give you a little bit of context as to why we're here. In in Acts, uh, the Apostle Luke wrote what what we've come to know as Acts. If you look in your Bible, it's called Acts of the Apostles. We could also title it Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. But it's part two of Luke's biblical work because you also know Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke where in the Gospel of Luke, he's outlining and introducing for us who Jesus is, what his earthly ministry was about, and the commissioning of Jesus to his disciples and to his church. And so as you read and consider the Gospel of Luke, we come away with this anticipation that the Holy Spirit is going to come and work out and fulfill all the promises that Jesus has been teaching about in the life of his church. Well, then guess what? We flip over to the Acts of the Apostles, and what do we see? The, Holy, the promised Holy Spirit beginning to work out the gospel promises of Christ in the life of his church. And so it should come as no surprise to us that what Jesus promised happened, and therefore what Jesus promised will still happen. So we're going to look this morning at the birth of the early church and see how the Holy Spirit works that out and look at what exactly is gospel community. So I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. The sermon text today will be 42 to 47, but I'm going to pick up in verse 37. Peter has just finished his, what we call the Pentecost sermon In verse 37, we get the response of the people. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Literally, they were undone and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, 
They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. Please be seated. So I want us to consider together, A, what does the Bible say that true gospel community is? Because the Bible is very clear about that. What being a part of the church means, what it is, what it looks like. But the Bible is also very clear about what it means to live life in that context. The Bible is very clear about what it means to be a part of, a member of the community of faith, a gospel community. To illustrate the point, because I kind of want to, I want to poke at a cultural predisposition that we have. And you'll, you'll kind of get that as we go along, but I want to start with an illustration from our culture. Uh, in the late 90s, a movie came out called Titanic. It came out in 1997, perhaps you remember. Uh, I told this in the first service, and if you, if you don't know about our 8 o'clock service, it's predominantly older crowd. And I said, I was in middle school when it came out, and I was not telling a joke, but it was received as a joke because they were picking fun at how young I am. And, but I was. I was in middle school in the late 90s, and I was uh, very interested in the boat, Titanic, just the ship. And I could rattle off how much it weighed and all kinds of you know, facts that I can no longer uh, tell you. But when this movie came out, I was a young person. I was excited that they were making a movie about a boat that I loved. Now, if you know the movie, you know it's not about the boat that I loved. It's about this fictitious romance. But that's really what I, what I want to call your attention to. In the movie, it displays two characters, Rose and Jack. And Rose is from the upper tier of society where money's no object, luxury is the way of life, affluence, everything that you could ask for. She's, in, she's saying the first class accommodations on the Titanic. But one of the rules for that part of society was you don't venture outside. You don't break with the family. You obey the lifestyle that the family lays down. And to ensure that that type of culture remained intact, they would arrange marriages. And those marriages would take place within the sphere of that culture. You don't, you don't venture outside. And so when we meet Rose, she's engaged to this man who she's not interested in, but he's wealthy and he's from that, from that class. Well, along comes Jack. And unlike Rose, Jack has to scrap and fight and get on the boat. And he finds himself in basically a, a bunk room of four people about the size of this piano. So two diametrically opposed people socially, and the movie highlights and celebrates, they have come together and engage in this, this passionate, romantic uh, relationship. What the movie doesn't highlight, however, is the fact that to do that, Rose had to shame her family. In that culture, early 1900s, that, that, that affluent, luxurious, first-tier culture, you, you didn't venture outside because you protect that way of life. And if you did venture outside, you brought shame to the family and you messed up that way of life. And that was unthinkable. Now that doesn't, that doesn't jive with us now. That's not part of our culture. Now we don't think like that. Most young people today, if their parents said, look, I've picked someone for you to marry, they would just leave. How dare you infringe on my ability to be who I am. It just doesn't fit with our cultural narrative. And it didn't fit with the cultural narrative in which Titanic came out in 1997. Something was happening in our culture that the movie spoke to and valued. But interestingly, if you showed that movie in an Eastern culture where such a family structure is still practiced, they would find the whole notion of, of Rose and Jack offensive. They would think of Rose as scorned. Uh, uh, they, they would 
view her through scornful eyes, heaping shame on the family. How dare you exchange family honor for the fulfilling of romantic emotions? That just wouldn't jive in an Eastern culture today. It wouldn't fit in the culture in which Titanic was set. And friends, it doesn't fit in a biblical worldview either. But what made Titanic so successful in a movie industry was that it, it dealt with a cultural value that America has come to hold, which is me above all else. Me above everybody else. And the problem is, friends, that we sometimes hold on to that explicitly, but we can also hold it implicitly, and it can influence in ways we don't intend for it to, but we can come to the Bible that way from time to time or all the time. We can read the Bible through a me-centered view. What is God saying to me today? How does this apply to my life? What church am I going to be a part of? And we can view the Bible and the commands of Jesus through the lens of I. But you see, the problem with that is the Bible makes no provision for such a view. The Bible never teaches that we are to come to the Bible with a me-centered worldview. The Bible never teaches that we are to relate to one another on the basis of I. There's only one I in the Bible, and that's God. God is concerned with himself, and he's concerned that we together know him, know one another, and are devoted to one another. So that's, that's the task before us today. Acts 2 presents us not with an individualistic view of the Christian life. Acts 2 presents us with a communally driven view of the Christian life, life together, as one pastor from church history says. So I want to bring three things to our attention this morning. The first one being, what is the foundation for gospel community? See, community is a buzzword in our culture today. It's very, it's very fancy and attractive to people in my generation. We want to be, you know, we want to, we want to do things in community. We want to be in community. We've even made cultural or businesses have, have made themselves culturally relevant by facilitating community. An example is a place like Starbucks. Right? Starbucks is a place to go in and be together and you know, be communal. There's these community tables that you sit at. The problem is when you walk into Starbucks, what do you see? A bunch of individuals sitting beside one another being individuals. Like there's this big long table at Starbucks, and our, our Starbucks, and can see like eight people. Now, I, I, I confess, when I walk in there, I'm like, I'm not sitting there. If that's open and all the other tables are filled, I'm leaving because I've gone there to study, right? But that's, that's just a personal view because when I walk into Starbucks, I'm concerned with, with two things, my coffee, okay? My coffee and my place to sit by myself. But we think we're in community when we are in such environments. And we need to ask ourselves, how am I participating in the community of God? How am I understanding the community of God? Am I going about it in a God-centered, Bible-informed way or am I trying to just facilitate this idea of community that I have in my head and I wind up just sitting beside my brothers and sisters and never engaging? Am I just putting in my proverbial headphones when I come into church and just listening? So the, first, the, the, the foundation of gospel community that I want us to see is that God-centered people are devoted people. Look at verse 42. It said, they devoted themselves to four things teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayers. And we'll consider those in a moment. But right now, I want you to look at the fact that they devoted themselves. Verse 41 said that they received the word, talking about the word of God, 
They were obedient because they repented of sin and were baptized. And then the word begins to work itself out in their life. It begins to affect them. They don't just go buy a Bible and own it. The Bible begins to have an effect on who they are, on how they think, on how they live, on the choices that they make, on what they're doing. And so when we come to that word, they devoted themselves, it's a verb, and here's what it means. It means a steadfast, single-minded fidelity to a course of action. Are you stunned? All right, you're not stunned. It's all right. Here's what it means. Here's what it means. All those fancy words, they were sticks in the mud about what they were doing. They were so committed to God's people. They were so driven internally about being in relationship with God's people that they would not be moved. When we hear the word fidelity, we should think of marriage. We expect fidelity in marriage, meaning we promised ourselves solely to our spouse. And in promising myself to my spouse, I am promising that I'm not taking, I'm not expanding that relationship to any other. And so the word devoted carries with it this idea of single-minded fidelity to the course of action, and that course of action being the people of God, being in the community of faith and inside of a gospel community. You see, in this context, these people were most likely Jewish Christians. We're talking in Jerusalem, the, the, the heart and soul of Judaism. And so most of these people have converted out of Judaism. They're, they are now what we would call Jewish Christians or Messianic Christians. And so the church is not this normal cultural institution that we know today. There aren't churches on every corner. There aren't denominations to choose from. It's one thing. It's the church. And so they have committed themselves, heart, soul, and mind to this newfounded institution, and they are adhering to it with everything that they are. To say it a different way, they were persisting obstinately in this new life that the gospel creates in the people of God. And so as I'm studying and working through this text, I'm asking myself these questions because just as you need the word, I need the word. We together need the word of God for all things, life and godliness. Jesus himself said that in his temptation, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I'm asking myself, what does it mean to persist in something? What are things that I, Ben, what, what, what do I persist in? Well, if you know me well at all, one of the things you know that I persist in is both reading and owning books. I have a lot of books in my office here at the church. I have a lot of books in my home. And you know who else knows I have a lot of books? My wife, because she lives with me. And not only do I have a lot of books in my home on my shelves, there are books on the bedside table. There are books stacked up just everywhere because Ben is about books. And I'm all the time reading between six and eight books at a time just because I have such varied interests and I want to read. And so I persist in it. So the idea is like I'm committed to it in such a way where I'm going to, I'm going to read rather than not read. And so when I choose to spend time reading, when I'm persisting in reading, guess what I'm not doing? Something, something else. I've said no to something else in order that I might persist in that activity. In the same way, when we talk about persisting in gospel community, the, the reality is we've got to say no to things in the world in order to say yes to membership in the people of God. 
And so not, these people were not just devoted to God, they were devoted to one another. They were deeply devoted to one another. We can often, we can often fall into a, a, an ungodly preference of one over the other. We can find ourselves wholly devoted to God and we can, we can speak theologically, we can talk about different arguments and which theologian from which period in church history are you reading and, and all kind of fancy religious language, but we may absolutely hate the people of God by how we live. And all that theological fluff is for none. But in the same way, some of us so prefer people that we neglect what God has said about his church and just prefer people. And so we neglect God's mission and his teaching. But the Bible holds a healthy tension that we are devoted to God and we are in, do, in being devoted to God, we are devoted to his people. And so I asked myself some questions about what does it mean to persist in gospel community? Do we, as Parkwood Baptist Church, we're members of this church, are we persisting in gospel community? So here's some diagnostic questions that I asked myself and I wanna ask you. Do you look forward to not having to go to your gospel community. And here's what I mean. We, we practice community in two ways. Number one, corporate gatherings like this on Sunday mornings. And then in the context of Parkwood, we practice growth groups, which are small group gatherings where we study the Bible, pray, fellowship, share meals. Do you look forward to not having to go? Maybe you've had something come up to where you can't make it and it's like, eh, no big deal. Are you relieved when it's canceled? You know, I'll confess there are times in my life where I've been relieved, like, got a night off. But because of God's grace, it's not a pattern in my life. I genuinely enjoy our growth group. But that's a diagnostic question for our hearts. Are we persisting in gospel community? Are we relieved when we don't have to go? Are you always critical of your group or your church? See, criticism is good when we use it in the right way. We should be critical in order to pursue flourishing. We should want each other to be better. And to be better, we've got to deal with the things that are less than. So in dealing with those things, we have to be critical. But some of us are just critical for the sake of being mean. We never have in mind the good of another. So here's what I wrote, just reminding myself, that knowing that the church is a group and not individuals, it's group-focused, and that the health of such a group relies on the devotion and giving of its members how does that score with my view of gospel community? The health of the church depends on my devotion to God, but also on my devotion to you, brothers and sisters. And the health of this church depends on your devotion to God personally, but also your devotion to one another and to me. You don't answer, the, don't answer this out loud, but I want you to think in your mind, when you walked in here this morning, did you walk in thinking, I'm gathering with my brothers and sisters to enjoy our good father? Or did you walk in here thinking, I need to sit right there, and I have no idea who's sitting beside me. And you know your heart. But the idea is that in being devoted to God, inside of the gospel community, we are devoted to one another. Devotion speaks of what we hold most dear. So let me give you an illustration. Think for a moment about all the institutions and groups in your life that kind of make up your day-to-day -day routine. Employers, schools, businesses, 
Now, I've gotten a lot of, of, of jesting about this, but I'm, I am totally secure in it, so you jest away if you need to. I love Sam's Club, okay? My wife knows I love Sam's Club. I just get happy driving up. I don't know why, but I, I just enjoy the experience. I walk in, they're all smiling. You know, when we, when we leave, they draw smiley faces on the receipts for my kids. It's just a fun experience. There's free food in the back, but I enjoy Sam's Club. But imagine you walk into Sam's Club and you walk in with a $100 bill in your hand and you walk up to an employee and you say, uh, I need to speak to the manager. And immediately all the blood leaves the employee's face and they scurry off to get the manager. What have we done? The manager comes out. Yes, sir, what, what, how can I help you? And you say, you know what? I just so appreciate Sam's Club and you just got, you guys provide all the things I need for my home. It's just such an enjoyable experience and I just get such joy by being here here's $100 and walk out the door. The manager would be stunned and you would be looked at as a strange individual because that's not how businesses work. Businesses are for profit, which means they're trying to earn our money. So when I walk into Sam's Club, I'm not there to make a donation. I'm there to exchange money for goods. And as much as I love Sam's Club, I still hate walking up to the checkout line because I know they're going to take my money. But it highlights a point. We utilize institutions to achieve our own goals and to meet our own needs. You see, we each individually set goals and we have purposes in our lives and that's good. We should have those things. And we utilize institutions and businesses and schools to achieve those goals. Schools especially, right? You don't send your child to a school to enhance the school. Maybe you do, but most people don't. Especially when you get into higher education, you get really picky. What school can I go to? What professor can I be with that will, that will benefit me? And so we begin to use these cultural institutions for the realizing of our own goals. And my fear is that that's how we have come to treat the church. That we have this cultural idea that God is a, will be appeased if I'm present in church or that the church meets needs. And so by being in church, I'm somehow going to meet a need or have a need of mine met. But see, that totally misses the point of what God intends for his church to be. And it's actually an abuse of what it means to be a part of the community of God. Now, don't get me wrong. The church is of great benefit to the people that make up the church, but our primary interest in the church as the people of God is not what can the church do for me, it's what can I do for the people of God? Because my primary devotions are to God and to you. But if my primary devotion is to me, I'm gonna have no interest in you. I'm going to use you and any relationship I have with you as a means to an end. And so when we think about devotion, what we need to understand is that it's a two-way street. I'm devoted to God, and in being devoted to God, I'm devoted to you because I love you, and I want what's best for you. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, we're going to wrong one another. If you've been in any kind of relationship for any length of time, we are going to wrong one another. The Bible is very open and honest about this. Sin still plagues the hearts and lives of the church, but you know what? Grace abounds. And if we are ungracious people, and if we do not forgive by the same means that we are forgiven, we are harming the church. We are not devoted to one another. And brothers and sisters, we are not devoted to God. So the foundation of gospel community is that we are devoted people. 
which very briefly, we need to highlight, creates awe, both within and out of the church. That word awe means fear. This is not a frightened fear. It's not scared. What it means is there's a reverent awareness that something's different. There's a reverent awareness that something is different. This community generates an ongoing reverence in every soul, both within and without. You know when you come into contact with somebody who loves the Lord. You know when you come into contact with somebody who's devoted both to God and to his people. And you enjoy those people because they're contagious. And you know when you walk into a growth group where there's genuine devotion to God and treasuring of the word and genuine relation with one another because you know what? You stick around. That's a good place to be. But you've also been in the groups and in churches where there's only a devotion to God and not to one another or only to one another and we never get to God. See, true gospel community creates a reverent fear within us because we are devoted both to God and to one another, which leads us into a distinct lifestyle. Point number two, the the lifestyle and worldview of a gospel community is distinct. And there are four primary functions to which every believer is devoted. First one is teaching. The centrality of Jesus in all things is the primary teaching of the church. We want each other to know that Jesus is the center of all things and the meaning of all things and our most deeply held value. Jesus is who we treasure above all else. He is at the heart of our devotion. When we say, what are you devoted to? Christ. And when we say it in a biblically informed way, we're saying, and one another. But you also got to understand the gospel radically reshapes and redefines our life. And I fear that we've become so eager for people to proclaim conversion to Christ that we forget that Upon conversion, we've got a laundry list of curriculum, essentially, that we've got to teach this person how to be a faithful Christ follower. You see, the gospel is not complicated. The fact that Christ died for sin in our place and was buried and was raised and that salvation is only in him, that's not complicated, but friends, it is entirely complex. Because by coming to Christ through the gospel, he's saying, die to yourself and follow me. We are to teach one another what it means to love Christ in a fallen world. We're to teach one another what it means to treasure Christ above all else. We are to teach one another what it means to be devoted to one another. And so we practice teaching in a number of ways. This is one of our primary ways. We gather on the Lord's day. We hear from the word. We're submitting ourselves to it. We do the same thing in growth group. We gather not just to have fun and and kick the tires. Hey man, how's it going? We gather to sit under the word together. But friends, it doesn't stop there and it can't stop there. Teaching should be an aspect of how we live our lives. Teaching is an aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Teaching should inform every informal experience of our lives. As as speaking personally, I have a responsibility to teach my wife, my children, my growth group, uh, anybody else that I'm in contact with. Teaching is, is what I should do. I should teach you through our friendship and our relationship how to love Jesus more and more. Now, the problem is we often overcomplicate it. All right, I got to teach. I got to sit and I got to write a lesson plan and I make sure I can get it in time. And we don't know how to translate such a thought about teaching to interpersonal discipleship. I'm going to invite somebody over. If I came to you, I said, I want you to invite somebody over and teach them about what it means to love God. A lot of times we think, all right, I got to write out a lesson plan. Rather than just saying, all right, I'm going to be godly 
and I'm gonna invite somebody to come over and I'm just gonna be godly around them. So I wanna give you an instance. And uh, one of these young men is sitting right over here. And I, I love this story, Garen, and you and I both cherish this story together. But I invited Garen and a young man named Chandler Gibbs, who's no longer here, to come to my house uh, for dinner. And I had told them on the front end, I want you to pay attention, just, just observe me being a husband and a dad, watch how I treat Tara, watch how I respond to the kids. If they get angry and I gotta discipline the kids, you watch, you just pay attention. And I don't remember, I don't think I said that right before, but they came over for dinner and many of you know my family and love my family and I'm so grateful for that. But I have a son named Haddon and many of you may know Haddon and he's a force to be reckoned with as a three-year-old. He's wonderfully full of life, big personality, but he's also an aggressive little thing. And he had gone out in the backyard because he was in trouble for something and was throwing a temper tantrum. And we have sliding glass doors that go out in our backyard. And he, he got this plastic shovel. It's about that big. And he was out in the backyard and he just figured, well, I'll show them. And I'm, I believe we were sitting at the table, either eating or ha had our Bibles open. And he just walks up and hauls off and slams that shovel into the glass door. And I felt in my flesh, righteous anger. I need to discipline my son. And then I also felt, I've told these men to watch me. <laughs> and so two things happened in that moment. Two things happened. They got to watch me respond to disciplining my child, a normal everyday act in my life. But I was reminded to be holy. I was reminded to be devoted to God and to them in that moment. And we, there are many other stories like that. And I cherish those memories and I will for a long time. But when we think about teaching, it's not overly complicated, friends. It means living a consistent faith-filled life in every area and inviting people to watch, which leads into fellowship. It says they were devoted to fellowship. And the, the Greek word there is koinonia, which you've probably heard maybe, but the, the, the root word is common. Koin, koine in Greek means common. They held all things in common. So when I grew up, fellowship was the covered this lunch after the sermon. So I, you know, I grew up with this idea of fellowship always meant food and it always meant good deviled eggs. That was what was in my mind. And the ones you have to watch out for, you know what I'm talking about. But that's what fellowship was in my mind. And what I've come to realize, the Bible speaks about fellowship very clearly, what it is. And it means holding all things in common in this room together. You and I, in our devotion to God, have a devotion to one another that should drive us to hold all things in common. There should be nothing that is divisive amongst us. And here's the reason why, because our primary devotion is not to our own preferences, friends. Our primary devotion is to Christ and what he is doing in each of us. Because guess what? What Christ is doing in your heart, he's doing in mine too. The salvation that God, that, that God is working out in your heart, he's working it in mine too. And that should draw us together because we hold that in common. And so it fleshes itself out in a number of ways. They gather for worship regularly. In this context, because the temple was so central to, Jew, to Jewish life, they gathered every day. That's not really practical for us because our lives go a million different directions when we, come, when we leave this place on Sundays. But the imperative is that we are in each other's lives. The people that you love most and that you hold most dear, guess what? They are in your life. 
You make sacrifices in order that they are in your life. And here's the reality. God calls us to have such a relationship with one another. That's what the church is to be. Many of us have benefited in in numerous ways from genuine gospel love among the people of God. Many of us, if we are honest, have also harmed that by harboring sin and not allowing our devotion to be to God, instead being to ourselves and our own agendas. And we end up using the church and using the people of God as a means to accomplishing our own ends, which is a disruption of good fellowship. It says they devoted themselves to meals. There are two types of meals in view here. There's the Lord's Supper and this regular sit down, have dinner together. And we should devote ourselves to both because biblically, I don't have time to unpack the whole thing, but the table of God, the Lord's Supper is meant to be a point of unity inside of the body of Christ. It's meant to instill unity, to remind us of what's most common for us, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so our devotion to that is a devotion to God and to one another. And in the same way, we should be devoted to sharing in meals together because you and I both know we eat all the time. We got to eat. And that's a great time to be together. What do families do when it comes to the holidays? They eat. They eat all that they can in one day because eating facilitates togetherness. And what do we value most dear? We value togetherness. And then fourthly, they devoted themselves to prayer. Luke emphasizes this both in Luke's gospel and in the Acts of the Apostles that the community of God prays. You see, ungodly worldly people depend on ungodly worldly wisdom. But the church, taken up with devotion to God and to one another, depends entirely upon godly wisdom, which is found through prayer and his word. And so we're people that pray. You might be thinking, I don't know how to pray, or I'm not praying in front of anybody. Well, we're not going to offer a a class on how to pray. Here are 10 points on how to pray. That's not how it works. God designed us to teach each other how to pray. Guess what? By praying together. So you who are strong prayers, pray around other people. I have an imperative in my home to teach my family how to pray by how I pray. We should teach each other to pray. And then we see that all this bled over into the fact that they just loved one another and sacrificed when any had need. They met each other's needs with glad hearts. Why? Because they were devoted to God and they were devoted to one another. The sin of hard-heartedness and hatred did not mess up the community because it was, that sin was always dealt with in the context of devotion to God and devotion to one another, which means nothing can come between us which we can't work out by the grace of God. So lastly, I want to point out two things. When God's people are devoted to him and devoted to one another, when they devote themselves to right teaching, fellowship, meals, and prayers, we see two things happen. We see the gospel community of God flourish. Isn't that crazy? God said, if you do these things, good stuff will happen. You want to know why a lot of churches are closing their doors and the religious landscape in America is dead? Because people aren't doing these things. It's just that simple. When we are godly and we are godly together, guess what? God is honored and we benefit from it. The community flourishes. But also pay attention to verse 47. It says the gospel went forward with aggression. Day by day, people were being saved. God was adding to their number day by day. So the mission of God is not separate from community. We, we, we often 
build a dichotomy in there. I can either be committed to God's church or committed to God's mission, but that, that's, a, that's an unfortunate wrong dichotomy. You see, in being committed to God's church, devoted to him and devoted to one another, brothers and sisters, we are devoted to his mission of reconciling the world to God, which is what we're going to consider in our growth groups this week. So what? What's the point of all this? We're beginning a series on what it means to be part of gospel community. So I want to ask you this question first. Is the Bible informing your understanding of gospel community? Is the Bible informing your understanding of what it means to be in gospel community? So highlighted on the front end, our culture has a deep impact on us and a deep influence on us. And we can sometimes unknowingly allow that to come into our church practice. So we should all the time be asking ourselves, am I being influenced by the word of God when it comes to the things of God? Or am I allowing some cultural influence to affect me in such a way that I'm somehow in sin? Is Jesus your most deeply held value? Are you devoted to him in the biblical sense? Is, is he what you're saying yes to and saying no to other things? i ask you a second question. Are you being faithfully obedient by being a part of gospel community? Are you being faithfully obedient to the Lord by being a part of gospel community? You see, reconciliation to God doesn't just mean that I, the individual, am now reconciled to God. Now, it does mean that, but it also means that I, the individual, am reconciled into the people of God. And my place and identity and family is now inside the people of God. Are you a member of a local church. We value church membership here because we believe it's so explicit in the Bible. We value community, which is why we practice growth groups, which is where we work out the four things, teaching, fellowship, sharing of meals and prayer, which is why we, we, we lay growth group uh, membership down as an expectation of our members. We want you deeply invested in a gospel community. And that's what we expect of one another. I love my growth group. I cherish my growth group. We have ages ranging from, I think Tara and I are some of the youngest in our early 30s, all the way up to people in their 70s. And it's wonderful. And we look forward to everybody gathering in our home. We need that. And then if you are a member of the church and you're in a growth group, we need to ask ourselves this question, am I participating in a godly way? We, we need to always be evaluating ourselves. Am I utilizing this growth group as a means to an end? Am I utilizing my church as a means to an end? Or am I participating in a way that honors God, that reflects that I'm devoted to God and devoted to you? You see, Acts presents us with a picture of a church, not of individuals, but of a family who is fiercely devoted to the welfare of one another. So in my studies, I came across a quote, and it absolutely wrecked me. And so as I close, I want to wreck you too. That's my prayer, that this, this quote will lay on you and that you will think about it. But here's the quote. This guy says, Everything about the Gospels and Acts tell us that God's people are to take the initiative to show community and serve those around them. We are to take the initiative. Much in Western culture, which is where we live, drives us to an individualism that undercuts this development of community. We are taught to have things our way and that being able to have our individual needs catered to is how we measure the success of an organization. 
In our culture, our individual needs and rights come before any needs of the group. The biblical picture is not of what someone receives from the church, although one does receive a great deal, but of what one gives and how one gives it. The portrait of the early church in Acts shows that community and the welfare of the group are the priority. Let's pray. Lord, I confess this is a heavy word and the more I think on it, the more I read it, the more I study it, the more I'm taken with it. God, you intend to save people. That is without question. Your mission is to reconcile the sinner to yourself and you are doing that powerfully through the gospel of your son and applying it through the powerful working of your Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of men and women and boys and girls. And you've been doing that for thousands of years and you will continue But God, just as much as you are committed to saving lost souls, you are committed to developing and dwelling among your people. And you've told us very clearly how the gospel creates us as a people and how it sustains us as a people and how our lifestyle is to be inside of that people. And it's all for our good. God, teach us to love these truths. Teach us to to value them above all things. Humble us where we need to be humbled. Bring reconciliation, oh God, where we need reconciliation. Teach us to hate sin, to love holiness. God, bind us together as a family through the power of the gospel. And I pray these things in your name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.